A lot of good reminders this morning in, in communion and the songs that we sang. You know, I, I especially um, appreciate the, the last song that we sang. We sang, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And what is that heart? What is that focus of, of, of a heart of worship? It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And I love that song because it brings us back to Christ. And it points us to the Lord and all that he has done. And all that he is in his heart of grace and mercy towards us. His holiness, His majesty. But I have to ask, every time I sing a song like that, and some of the others we sing, give us clean hands. Hungry, I come to you. Does my life, does your life reflect that song? If you really think about it, what is it that you're passionate about? What do you love to do on any given day? What makes you happy? The answer to those questions will shed light on what we truly worship. And that song, the heart of worship itself, acknowledges it's not a song that God wants or a Sunday attendance, but it's our heart. He wants us to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as we come to where we are in, in the story of Exodus, we're getting to the end. Israel has been brought out of slavery. God has provided for them. He has protected them. He has been faithful to them. He's offered them his covenant. And Israel has committed to obey God and to keep his covenant. In a lot of ways, they, you could say that they said exactly what we were singing today. That they were giving their lives to God, to worship him, to love him, to serve him. To say it's all about you. But Exodus 32 is a pretty sad story. Because we see that their lives don't reflect the commitments they made and the words that they spoke in previous chapters. You know, they, they had a heart of worship, but it was not a heart for God. If you know the story, you know that Israel makes an idol to worship. And in their sin, we see a reflection of our own hearts and our own idols. Exodus chapter 32 opens up for us. It shows us the heart of idolatry. 
It reveals our sinful ways and the awful consequences of sin. All of this that we might see our need for a heart that worships God, for a heart of worship that has a passion for Him alone. We come to this place of worship when we see the goodness and mercy of God. And we are willing to turn from our empty pursuits to the Lord Himself. We're going to talk about idolatry this morning. And I want to begin by reading Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 to 6. Now this is what happened. Moses is up on the mountain. God is giving him commandments and the instructions for the tabernacle. Why? So that he might live with his people. That's God's heart. Now here is man's heart. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Not exactly the heart that God had for his people. It wasn't the heart that he wanted them to have towards him. But this is where people are at. The long and short of it is that Israel plainly and willingly out of their hearts chose to commit idolatry. They made an idol and they worshipped it instead of the true and living God. The God who loved them. Suppose the first point we should establish about idolatry is what it is. Idolatry is the worship of idols. Sounds, if that's vague enough for you, maybe let's dig in a little bit more. An idol is really taking something in creation and, and making it the object of our worship. That's what we look to, this visible thing, something that we desire 
and are living for rather than God. Who is not seen and whom we must trust, though we cannot see him. In Israel's case, they chose to worship the image of a young bull. They took what God had made and they made an object of worship. This is a practice with roots in Egyptian beliefs and, and many of the other cultures. Since the beginning of the after the fall, mankind has worshipped nature in various ways. And it kind of sounds strange to our way of thinking because we just look at a bowl and that's something that we eat, <laughs> right, you know? But here's the thing. Like Israel, we make the same foolish choices to worship things that are visible and temporary rather than the eternal, invisible God. We choose something that looks good to us. A bull, it looks strong, it looks powerful. Maybe this is a God. This is worthy of my worship. But we substitute the all-powerful creator who is good in all his ways for something that he has made. And so whatever we look to in this world and make something that we worship or that we live for or long for, it doesn't satisfy. How does it come to this? Why would I choose, if you put it logically, if you're looking at the practice of worshiping a bull and you compare it to an all-powerful, all-knowing, awesome God, you go, well, I think God maybe is a little bit more worthy of worship. But we don't think that way, do we? We don't look at the things that we love and that we live for and think, that's foolish. Why is that? Well, to answer that question, I think it will help us to take a step back. Israel's idolatry, it didn't begin when they bowed down to that idol. It, I don't think it even began when they, they made the idol. They were in the process of making it. Their idolatry began with a desire in their heart. And they set out to do what they did out of that desire for another God. If idolatry is to worship something in creation, we need to understand that idolatry begins in the heart. It's all about the heart more than the externals. The externals might reveal something's gone wrong. But there's something deeper. Idolatry begins by wanting something in creation and placing it over God, placing it ahead of Him. 
The Apostle James, in James chapter 1, writes about times of trouble. And in times of trouble, we might be tempted and, and we could say, well, maybe it's God's fault. He's put me here. Or we could say, well, I'm just in a tough spot right now. Just give me a break, right? But what does James say is the root of temptation? In James chapter 1 and verse 12 and 13, told that each one is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own desires. James wants us to understand that the root issue of sin and temptation is a matter of what we want, what we desire in life. We start to look at our wants. It can seem rather innocent. It's just, oh, we want things all the time. And there's a lot of things we could live without. We could say, well, I really would love a Ferrari. That'd be nice. But I can live with my minivan. Or, or you know, we, 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 we set aside a lot of our desires. But we still act on what we desire and love and want the most. If I really wanted a Ferrari and I didn't have one, I suppose if I wanted it bad enough, I could run down at night with my buddy and go to the Ferrari dealership and break the door open and smash the windows and, and go steal a Ferrari and have a joyride. There's other desires that rule me a little bit more like my desire for safety and maybe not to get caught. But we have desires and we have restraints in society that might keep us from acting on some of these desires. But we still desire those things. When Jesus talks about desires, he says that the desire enough is equal to sin. To desire to kill somebody is a sin in the eyes of God. Even though we might say, well, I'm not going to get away with it, so I'll just shelf that idea. That's the way that the scripture looks at idolatry. It looks at sin. That it's rooted in our hearts, in what we want. And, and we quickly move as we dwell on something, as we don't deal with our wants and submit them under God. They become something that we worship and something that we care about more than what God cares about. Something that we care about more than God himself. And so these desires that we might have that start out innocent enough, maybe a desire for just a little bit of rest at the end of the day. Oh, just a little bit of success. I want to see something accomplished some pleasure, something fun. When that becomes something that we need and we start to demand it and live for it, that desire begins to master us. 
And so we live for these visible, tangible things, these idols, like pleasure or praise or power. We could go on. And we choose these things and act on these desires rather than a love for God. Israel expresses their heart's love, their wants, by requesting a golden calf for a young bull to be made. And we could mock that desire and that, that why would they do, go to that? Well, we could look at our own hearts and ask ourselves, how do my wants shape the things that I worship? How do my desires shape what I live for? Because when we pursue what our heart desires, we're choosing to worship that thing. So idolatry is worshiping something in creation, something other than God. Something other than the God who made all things. And idolatry begins in the heart. It begins with the desire or the want for something in creation. Oh, I want to encourage you. We're exhorted in Scripture to watch our hearts. To keep your heart with all vigilance, Solomon said. Consider what it is that we're wanting and living for. But we don't end there here. We don't just end with what Israel wants and what they worship. We also come to see where idolatry leads us. And I'm afraid the answer isn't what you guys want to hear. This is right about now where our... our Sinful heart wants us to just stop listening. Forget about the rest of the story and what God does to the idolater. But point number three is that idolatry leads to the wrath of God. It's the just outcome of the person who continues to reject God in favor of this world and all that it has to offer. And so we read in Exodus 32 and verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside Quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf. And have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. 
and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you, Moses. God sees their sin. He sees the hearts of his people. He can't hide that. And God is not going to allow it to go unpunished. He's not going to allow sin to remain among his people. But he also heard the prayer of Moses in verses 11 to 13. In his mercy, God does not make a complete end of Israel. He doesn't say, I'm done away with you because God is a faithful God. And that's what Moses reminded him of in his prayer Exodus 32, verses 11 to 13. He reminds God of his promises in God. His will is always to keep his promises. So he does not make an end to Israel, but he is going to deal with the sin that is in the midst of his people. And so he sends Moses down. And when Moses sees this, when he sees it, and it takes for him, it takes seeing the, the outward, obvious sin. It was, it was right in front of his eyes there. A big party, burning some animals to a bull. And he was angry as God was angry. And his actions, in a small way, Reflect God's heart towards sin. And so we see Moses doing three things in the aftermath of this worship of idols. First, Moses broke the tablets of the Ten Commandments. What point is having these tablets when in the hearts of the people? They have broken the commands. They have not kept the covenant in their hearts. They don't worship God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so this act of breaking the tablets reminds us of what has happened in the hearts of all those who have rejected God to worship another. So we have this broken relationship picture. Then we have the bitter consequences of sin on display. Moses takes that idol and he doesn't let it sit around. He destroys it. He burns it, grinds it up, and throws it in the water. That was their water source. They're going to have to drink it. They're going to have to experience the consequences of their sin. And it was not pleasant. And so it is in our lives at many times. God makes us taste in a small way on this side of heaven. What the consequences of sin really are. And they're not pleasant. The last thing that Moses does 
is he, he says to the people, he says, who is on the Lord's side? Now that's the question here. Where is your heart? Is it on the Lord's side? Is it living for the Lord? Or do you live for yourself? You live for something you can attain in this world? Who is on the Lord's side? Well, the sons of Levi came to Moses. They chose to serve God. Then God, through Moses, commands them to do something that's very difficult. It's a whole lot more unpleasant than drinking a little bit of bitter water. God, through Moses, commanded them to, to kill everyone that they saw on that day committing idolatry and worshiping that idol. It didn't matter if they were family or they were friends or where they were from. God was not going to treat their sin lightly. And you know what? Those men did that day. They did what God asked of them. It was bloody. It was awful. And we're told that 3,000 of those that were committing idolatry, they were sinning against God. They had rejected God and His ways, and they died on that day. And honestly, we read this and it sounds a little bit awful. Maybe it makes you sick to your stomach if you can picture the devastation of war and, and death. But God is not going to clear the guilty without justice. They had chosen their path. And so this wasn't just a little bit of idolatry. They might have seen it. They might have, they worshiped God. They said, we're going to have a feast to God. They tried to mix these two things together. And so often we do that. We'll come to church on Sunday. We'll do some good deeds. We'll sing some prayers, read some scriptures. But it wasn't just a little idolatry in God's sight. It was a rejection of him and his love that was offered to them. So in that sense, it was really an act of hatred towards God. Every time we reject him in favor of this world, we are acting as an enemy of Christ, an enemy of the cross, as Paul said. Because you can't be friends with God and this world. You can't be mastered by the Lord Jesus Christ and money or pleasure or comfort. 
or praise. The truth is that one day all evil will be held to account. And God will judge, he says, justly on the basis of what we have done and on our heart towards him. Whether we love him, whether we worship him. But on that day, some of them experienced God's wrath a little sooner than they were expecting. And none of us really knows when we're going to stand before the judge. So let this be a warning. As Paul reminded the Corinthian church, who had their share of troubles and their share of immorality and idol worship going on. He said, remember their example. Heed the warning. Exodus 32 then ends and, and there's another judgment of God. Each person for their sin and he sends a plague as a very real picture of the wrath of God against sin. I really can't emphasize this enough. This is where the passage leaves us. That God and His wrath is upon all who reject Him. We're told in Scripture that idolaters cannot enter the kingdom of God. Galatians chapter 5 verse 21. And that on account of these things, a list of sins, including idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. I don't want any of us to stand there on that day not knowing about the gospel. Not understanding the, the depth and the gravity and the seriousness of our sin. That we're sinning against a person, a holy God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's not at all a joke. Remember, idolatry is a matter of the heart. And our hearts stand guilty before God when we look at the Scripture which teaches that the desires of our heart even can be sin. That covetousness, desiring what doesn't belong to us, that's what covetousness is. Covetousness is idolatry. When you want something that is not yours, that does not belong to you, or you demand it, when it does not belong to you, when you seek after it, that it does not belong to you, we are committing idolatry in our hearts. And when we look at grounds like that, if we really look at our hearts and ask God to search us and show us our sin, 
None of us is really innocent. Makes me wonder if we really saw that people are headed for wrath and that we are without Christ, maybe we would take this more seriously. This is a bleak time for Israel. But Moses does take sin seriously. And we've already seen he has God's heart of, of hatred towards sin. I love what he does the next day after 3,000 have died. He goes to the Lord to see if God might forgive his people. And he even offers, this is pretty amazing, he even offers his own life in exchange for theirs. Let's read what Moses said. Exodus chapter 32, verse 31. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. First of all, Moses acknowledges their sin. He doesn't brush it off. He says this is a great sin. And then he knows that it's not on account of the goodness of the people that God should save them. So he pleads for mercy. If you will perhaps forgive them. And if not. He says that he's willing to suffer. That the people would be saved. He was willing. In some small way in that moment. To experience what the people deserved. Because he also had God's heart that was a heart of love for these people. And so he prays this beautiful prayer. Oh God, can't rightly exchange Moses' life for the lives of these people. Moses may not have been complicit in this sin, but he was a man like us and just a man. But he points us toward the one who could rightly take the place of the people and be like them in every way except sin. So that he might suffer and die. And they would live. Folks, our only hope is in Jesus Christ. He is the one who is greater than Moses, who could offer up his perfect life in exchange for idolatrous people. His pure heart, 
his heart of love. In exchange for our sin and our heart of idolatry, of covetousness. Believing in Jesus Christ is our only hope. And if we are willing, if you are willing to acknowledge your sins and turn from your idolatry and your wants and your desires to God, believing that Christ died for your sins and that he's risen again so that you might have life in him, you can say that I believe in Christ and what he has done for me on the cross and I love him and I want to serve him. I know that I'm not worthy. But I know that he is. Then you are safe from God's wrath. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, from death and wrath to life and grace, favor with God. And he who loves you so dearly will not allow your life to remain the same. For your heart to be unchanged. For he offers us a new heart. And he will work in you. A heart of worship. That becomes more and more passionate about Jesus Christ. And him alone. A passion for more of him. And less of me. And less of this world as wonderful as so many things in it are. Because Christ and the joy of all that he offers us in eternity is far more than anything this world could offer. And once we've been awakened to the glory of Christ, there there really is no turning back because we've seen his beauty We belong to Him and we are secure in that. We're not immune to temptations. There are many times that we are drawn to our old ways. Times we think according to the pattern of this world, we are told that there is a war. A spiritual war. And our hearts are the battleground. But Christ has won the victory. And so the apostles warned us to flee from idolatry, to keep yourselves, little children. The apostle John ended his letter from idols because they have no place among the people of God. Paul told the Corinthians in 
Second Corinthians chapter six, verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? There should be none. That's what we see vividly pictured in Exodus 32. The God who was coming to dwell among his people was not going to tolerate idols in their midst. And we can thank God for the way that he disciplines us and reminds us of his great worth and his sacrifice so that he might free us from idols to worship him alone. May God continue to remind us of his grace in saving us from these things, that we would not go back to the blindness of sin, but that we would see his great worth and how precious it is to belong to him. Idolatry is really the greatest threat to the people of God. And the only remedy for a heart of idolatry is a a new heart from Christ, his own heart and a view of who he is. We have to start with God's rightful place. If God does not open our eyes to see him, we'll wallow about in what this world has to offer and we'll seek after our own desires rather than Christ. Our love for this world, our love for me and mine is displaced to the degree that we come to know and love God, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Lord, who is all gracious, completely faithful, a powerful God, a protecting God. And we could go on. Have your eyes been open to see the treasure that Christ is? How will you pursue Him this week? How will you seek him in his word and turn to him in prayer and in song? It's been said of Christians that God gives Christians a purpose and meaning. I don't know if you, into their lives, I don't know if you've experienced that. The joy of freedom and hope It's been said that God governs the way that we as followers of Christ act. It's about Him, His ways, His desires. And it's been said that God is often in the thoughts of those that love Him. That they get excited about Him. Can you say that's true of your life, that it's God that gives you meaning and purpose that directs your your life and your actions and your thoughts, that you often think of him with thankful hearts. 
and get excited about him? What might you put in the place of God that you would say, well, it's maybe not God that's giving me purpose right now. God really isn't in my thoughts today. It's been something else. Let's let the Holy Spirit convict us and bring us back to Christ. To know the joy of forgiveness. Don't Set it aside. Oh, it's just a little thing. Or try to hide it behind some good works or good deeds. Where is your heart today? And as you think about that, Consider how God is calling you to set aside your desires to put off, as Colossians 3 tells us, the old ways that are of envy and idolatry, hatred towards others, and to put on Christ as we renew our minds, as we remember Him, and his sacrifice. And as you think about these things, remember it's a matter of your heart. So consider the things that you want. Because our wants soon become worship and end in wrath apart from Jesus Christ. So let's be willing to confess And most of all, to pursue Christ. Because the pursuit of Christ is the way of life. For He alone can free us from idolatry and bring us back to a heart of worship. A heart that worships God.